Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to a Defend This Movie with a new uh, member. This Well, not new. You've been writing for us for months now. A year now. Yeah, the, but a new to the Defend This Movie voice, Secret Movie Club team member Patrick McElroy. How you doing, Patrick? Doing good, doing good. And uh, we are going to be doing a Defend This Movie on Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura in 1961, a seminal movie often cited as one of the first modern movies, really, that issued in a whole new way of making movies. Its structure was radical. No one had ever seen anything like it. Uh, Italian movie. We're going to get into it. Interestingly, in this debate you're going to hear today, this is one of the few uh, works of world cinema universally accepted as one of the greats that I really don't care for. I run off at the mouth a lot when the mic is not on about how much I don't care for this movie. And the thing is that anybody who makes a movie, and Michelangelo Antonioni, by the way, and we'll get into this, there are a lot of his movies I love, Blow Up, The Passenger, Last 10 Minutes is a Brisky Point. But I want to be honest. I want to be truthful. I want to get into I did go back and review it just to see if my thoughts had changed. And they're a little different, but I still mostly don't enjoy it, and I'll explain why. But that'll be coming up in a moment. Patrick, before I ramble on anymore, just tell us a little bit about yourself. I am 27 years old, and I live in Los Angeles. I am trying to get my movie made. I'm still working on the screenplay, um, trying to get financing, and uh, trying to find a producer for that. And good luck with it. Yeah. And that's wonderful. And you're one of the most knowledgeable people I know about all kinds of movies from the very beginning to the current moment. And also, you're one of these people in Los Angeles who you're one of the diehard, diehard, diehard cinephiles. There's like a group of about 10 of you or 20 of you. And you'll be at the New Beverly. You'll be at the Arrow. You'll be at the Los Feliz 3. You'll be at the Academy. But if there is an amazing movie that's playing on film, you and about 20 other people are going to be there. So people should also know that you're one of the diehard cinephiles of the city. And so when you see Patrick McElroy again, say hello to him and learn. Um, and Patrick writes our blog. His blog gets posted every Monday at noon. As always, you can uh, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Look at what we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets, eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com. By the time you hear this, we will have just or be just about to start announcing our October to December season. We've been doing a renovation at the theater. We're very, very excited. We want the October to December season to be our most ambitious yet, so please check that out. Also, when you listen to the Defend This Movie today, if you hear in the background construction work it's because today uh people just seem to be doing a lot outside and below us and around us but we're recording they're not stopping us and i think these mics are are so acute that it may you may never even hear what we're referencing but just in case i did sound in my middle year at film school and one of the things i learned is if there's a sound you've got to acknowledge it so that people know what it is so they can ignore it and then listen to our voices so that's what you're hearing all right, Patrick. So today you are going to be, I don't want to say defending the movie because it's not really a movie that needs defending. Most people acknowledge La Ventura as a world classic of all time. And all I mean by saying that is you're in the majority position. I am in the minority position, I think, although a lot of people have issues with Antonio. But anyway, you're going to be talking about why it's good. I'm going to be talking about why I have issues with it. What I would love to do is, uh, would you be cool setting up the movie for us, giving us a quick synopsis of what happens in it, just so sure. the audience knows? 
Well, the film was released in 1960, and it's about a wealthy uh, man who is going to marry a wealthy young woman who has a close friend, and the friend is kind of going through an existential crisis. And then they go out to sea, and they go on an island, and unexpectedly, the one who's going to get married she disappears and they can't find her and then the rest of the movie goes on there's a relationship that blossoms between the friend played by monica vitti and um the main um male, bis- lead. male lead i forget the name of the actor uh, gabriel Ferzetti, gabriel who people Frizzetti. would actually know weirdly from once upon a time in the west as the dying ra- rail baron that's it that's where he's from and also as the father of diana rigg in honor majesty's secret service that's it. yes that's where he's from <laughs> probably more recognizable to american audiences from that but anyway gabriel Frizzetti, monica vitti they're really the leads of the movie yeah they Begin a relationship. It's not quite romantic. Maybe they're not really in love with each other, but they just find it as a way to pass time. They feel, with all the possessions they have, that they can't connect with the world, that this modern world, post-World War II Italy, is meaningless, and that in the nuclear age, everything can go out at any moment. As uh, Patrick said, the movie does pull a kind of psycho in that who you think one of your main characters is going to be disappears a half hour into the movie. And it's interesting that both those movies were made at about the same time. And what many people uh, lauded as being revolutionary at the time was you never know what happened to her. It's never explained. It's never resolved. You don't know if she fell off the cliff, committed suicide, or just ran away. The movie's two hours and 15 minutes, and she disappears 30 minutes into the movie. So the next hour and 45 minutes, it's like the carpet's been pulled out. You, you don't know what's going to happen or what's going on. Then I think probably for the purposes of our conversation, uh, just so folks know, Gabrielle Frazetti and Monica Vitti do eventually consummate, in a way, their relationship, which is sort of shocking. Her best friend and the man who was going to marry the woman who disappeared, they get sexual, if not completely have sex, but they definitely get very sexual with each other. And then suddenly she discovers him in the arms of another woman at the end of the movie. But the movie does become, as you said, Patrick, very existential, very modern, and very much dealing with uncertainty and issues of meaning and meaninglessness that you hadn't really seen in cinema before. And I think are probably what Antonioni is known for, are for these existential crisis movies where what we would expect from a plot or a story or getting an answer, you're told very soon, like, why are you looking for an answer? It's almost the point of the movies. It's Mm -hmm. like, there is no answer. So I just want to add that as, as why these movies were so revolutionary and still singular, whether I liked them or not, singular at the time. So opening statements. I just want to say about La Ventura that I'm very nervous and leery about the position I'm taking for a few reasons. I'm a filmmaker and anybody who makes a movie deserves praise. I don't care if that movie is great, mediocre, or bad. Making a movie is so hard that I'm just not comfortable bagging on movies or bagging on movie makers. I know, audience, you know this, but I don't think people quite realize how nearly impossible making a movie is. So whenever I take a stance where I'm being critical of something, I'm very nervous about it. 
I'm even <laughs> quadruply more nervous about it today because it's a movie that Martin Scorsese, when Antonioni died, wrote a very beautiful uh, eulogy, which I read, obituary in the New York Times. So many people cite Antonioni as the father of modern cinema in many ways that I'm also nervous about it, which is why when you and I agreed, I thought, no, I want to be honest about this because I always run off at the mouth at night about how I don't get this movie. Um, one, I do understand why this movie is uh, considered a classic. It's not that I don't get it. Two, I want to acknowledge from the start that its structure is revolutionary. And I can understand how it would have inspired and blown minds. How it would have blown a 18-year-old Scorsese's mind, you know, growing up on American cinema, even Italian cinema, which uh, even neorealist cinema like Bicycle Thieves or Rome, Open City or Paisan, even they, they have answers. Well, you may or may not like the answer, but they have a traditional beginning, middle, end. Here's what we're exploring, and here's our conclusion on that. That's kind of a, a standard story, standard movie structure. Antonioni blows that up. He's like a, a Sartre or, you know, a mid-20th century philosopher sort of pulling the rug out from Judeo-Christian, spiritual, there's a God, there's a meaning, there's an answer. Even the existentialists would say you find your own meaning, and Antonioni doesn't even give you that really. So I just want to give up from the beginning that re-watching it, I can understand and respect that. And I want people to understand, I actually love a few Antonioni movies. This is just not one of them. I love Blow Up. Blow Up for me is the Antonioni classic. That's the yeah. one that I can watch over and over and over again. And I think he does way more successfully in Blow Up what he's doing here. And people should see Blow Up. It's It's been so imitated. Coppola made The Conversation. De Palma made Blow Out. Mel Brooks made High Anxiety. All inspired by Antonioni's Blow Up in which a fashion photographer played by David Hemmings realizes he may have taken a photo that answers a murder. But as he tries to explore it more across one day, the murder never really gets resolved and what's going on never really gets answered. And we, we sort of follow him. And again, it's a, a typical Antonioni sort of, I'm not going to give you an answer. I'm not going to give you a resolution. The mystery is just going to be bigger. That's the one I love. And then after blow up, uh, maybe even equal with it is The Passenger. I'm a huge Passenger fan. And then I love the last 10 minutes as a brisky point, which has this incredibly stylized sequence where a woman imagines the whole world blowing up, basically, <laughs> and all material things blowing up. And I think there's a helicopter going over our head. And I love that. And I also really like sequences from La Note and La Eclise, which form a kind of trilogy with La Ventura. And I also love sequences from Red Desert. So I, I just want to be clear that there are Antonioni movies I love. This, though, is still not one of them. I watched it again. I don't think it has a sense of humor at all. And this, these are personal things. Yeah. But when a movie is too serious about itself, and listen, I love challenging movies, but even 2001 has a sense of humor. Even Bergman movies. Uh, now, there's some humorless Bergman movies, but even Wild Strawberries has yeah. a sense of humor. Fellini movies have a sense of humor. Even Tarkovsky movies have a sense of humor. I love David Fincher. I love dark movies. I love Zodiac, but Zodiac has a sense of humor. So to me, one of the flaws of this movie is it doesn't have a sense of humor. The the second flaw of the movie is it's just about rich people. And I watched it again trying to see, like, was I wrong about that? I understand that Monica Vitti's character may not be at the level of Anna, who is a diplomat's daughter. Anna's the woman who disappears. And Gabrielle Ferzetti is sort of a upper middle class 
businessman who's single and just kind of goes around gallivanting. But the movie, like literally, these are the these are the scenes in the movie. They get picked up from a diplomat's mansion. They get on a yacht. They then go, I guess, for a little while to a town to the police. Then they all get dressed up and go to another mansion. And then they wander around statues and bitch about their lives. And I'm not trying to be dismissive. I'm not classist. I made my money till I was 37, tutoring affluent people's children. I tutored the SAT and the ACT, and some of those affluent people helped me out, invested in projects I was doing. And I have found people who have money, at least in my experience, are actually often very aware they have money. They donate to charities. I knew a woman who's a friend of mine to this day who does Homeboy uh, here in L.A. Greg Boyle, yeah. Greg Boyle, Father Greg Boyle. She was a Catholic, is a Catholic, still practicing Catholic. Very well off, but she gives most of her money to helping underserved youth. So my experience with the well-off has been just my experience with middle class or lower class or working class. People are people, and that's really my belief. So I don't want people to take away from what I'm saying that I have a chip on my shoulder about the rich. I may. I want to be very clear about that. I may have a chip on my shoulder, but that's my fault. That's not how the rich are. The rich are people, and I firmly believe that. But I think that what Renoir does in like Rules, Rules of the, the game, game is, one, he has the good sense to make it a comedy so that you can laugh about it. Two, I actually find the rich characters to be very endearing because they're very aware of themselves. And like Dolly O, who's the rich guy in that movie, he's very aware that he's flawed and he jokes about stuff. But Renoir also shows the romances of the servants. So in that movie, you see the upstairs and you see the downstairs. And to me, it's a more successful taking on of this kind of milieu. My issue with La Ventura is that it's white people problems. It's like white rich people problems for the whole movie. All they're doing is like, I'm not as happy as I, I wish I could be. I don't know why I can't love. I don't know why when I have sex, I don't enjoy. I don't know why I wear this dress. I don't, and I'm like, F these people. <laughs> like these are white rich people problems. If I showed somebody who doesn't know if they're gonna make rent in a week, if I show somebody who got beaten by the cops because they're black, and, and I'm, I don't want to create a straw dogs argument here, but if I showed you know somebody who just saw somebody get shot in the head, and I'm like, here, watch this movie, I think they'd be like, that, you know, and, and the audience can't see this, but I make a motion, a masturbatory motion whenever I talk about this movie, <laughs> and I'm making that masturbatory. Like, this movie, to me, is mostly masturbatory and pretentious, and... I do still feel that. And I see its strengths, and I'll end there, and I'll, I'll save the rest for the debate. That's my opening statement. Okay, well, Rules of the Game is one of my favorite movies also, but it's different from La Aventura. La Aventura is going against a sort of humanism that Renoir had. Antonioni is representing a colder look at humanity. He wants to show... This post-World War II world where anything can be obliterated at any moment. In a way, the movie is almost like the song by Peggy Lee, Is That All There Is? Where at the beginning of the song, she details, I remember when I was a little girl, my house caught on fire and my father took me out. And all I said to myself was, is that all there is to a fire? In this movie, their friend disappears and really... Is that all there is to life? 
anything can happen at any moment. And is there really any meaning to it anymore? Since anything can just be diminished at any moment. And I think in an age of global warming, the movie actually holds up very well. Because we live in this world now where anything can be diminished at any moment. Also, I'm a working class person. I'm not wealthy or that. <laughs> but... I find this movie fascinating. Yeah, and I'm not rich. I just think that having this view of these people shows that these people of great wealth also have their distress. Scorsese once uh, described the movie as not so much existentialist, but people in a spiritual distress. Also, I really just find his use of deep focus amazing in the film. William Friedkin said when he was talking about Blow Up on TCM back in 2004, what's amazing about Antonioni is he never repeats a shot. He'll have two people talking in a frame, and typically you would go over the shoulder of one person and then cut back to them. He will go over the shoulder of one person, then... The other person will move within the frame, creating that shot while all being in focus. So there's this great thought being put into it. He's trying to go against the visual conventions of his day. Just the way he captures these landscapes at the beginning of the movie when the character disappears, Anna disappears, you feel this desolate sense. They're out on an island where there's nothing there. And there's this ocean, endless ocean for miles. So you feel this sense of being lost in this place of beauty. And also these very beautiful actors. So he gives you this great sense of environment in his films that I've always admired. And I feel La Ventura is just the boldest of them. I want to acknowledge a few really great points you just made. The rocky island where Anna disappears really is a character in the movie itself. You know, like you were saying, I think, I do agree with you that he has a way of choosing a landscape to cinematically represent sort of what's going on internally with the characters. Also architecture, I forgot to mention, how the buildings in his movies tower over the people, right. showing that we can create these great landscapes, but we can't solve our simple human problems. I thought, well, if this movie influenced Scorsese, then for that reason alone, because I'm such a huge Scorsese fan, one of the things I really respect about Scorsese is he does seem to be spiritual, but he also at the same time seems to be trying to see the world the way it is and be honest. I think a movie like Silence and he's talked about this. You can feel there's some doubt in Scorsese now in his old age. You can feel he's still a Catholic. Silence definitely seems to say that he's decided he's a Catholic. And even the Irishman shows that he still feels that he's wrestling with God and the meaning of God. And the past of his life also. Absolutely. But I think that Scorsese is also willing to say, but why do these things happen? Why is the world this way? As you were saying, and I think this is very valid, People can disappear. Horrible things can happen. Suddenly your whole life is upended. And I do think that Antonioni traffics in that kind of thing. And maybe, and I'm just being critical of myself here, yeah. because I don't hold that worldview, I don't share his bleakness. I think one of the reasons I don't personally 
vibe with this movie, La Notte, La Clisa, Red Desert. And they're not his first films because he was making movies in the 50s. But those movies I don't personally really vibe with because they all end pretty bleakly. And it's not to say that his bleak view isn't right. What you're saying, I believe in global warming. And I can see already how environmental destruction is upending geopolitics. And I have this really sinking feeling we're in for a world of hurt over the next few decades. And so your point about Antonioni being like, all this stuff is so flimsy. Because he's dealing with the nuclear age. Dealing with the nuclear age. I never thought about it that way. I think that is what's in the movie. But I think because I am an optimist, I also have spiritual faith. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is that sometimes, even if I didn't want to have spiritual faith, I have it. I thought about that. Sometimes the weird thing about faith is even if you didn't want to have it because you want to seem intelligent with other people. Yeah. You want to be able to say, oh, I see why you don't think there." Like, I believe firmly there is a God. Now, how I define that is more Buddhist and Zen, and we can get into that another time. I don't think it's a dude on a throne. But I believe in a transcendent level of the universe. I believe in the worth of living. I believe in the worth of existence. And I have more of a Renoir humanist view. So I think for me... My issue with Antonioni is I just don't share his worldview. It's not something I enjoy or that I, I believe in or that that's not even how I see the world. Going back to um, Scorsese and uh, Antonioni, interestingly enough, Antonioni is an atheist. Um, no and, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, like you, have spiritual faith, and I try to be optimistic also. But I think it's just a very interesting reflection on the world that you have to get this sort of bleakness in order to then fully accept things. So that's what I always take away from Antonioni's movies when watching them. And I agree with, you know, Spinoza uh, said, know the worst, but believe in the best. I think that the worst thing that I could do would be to turn away from an Antonioni movie just because I don't want to deal with its truths. Like Red Desert deals with industrialization mm -hmm. and alienation. And I think that's totally legitimate. I see it all the time. I think the more we've become technologically advanced, the more we've become alienated from each other. And Antonioni was talking about that in the 60s, you know, before smartphones and before the internet. Before, before 2001 before, also. Yeah. So you're right, Patrick. Antonioni is talking about uncomfortable truths. And you can't have a strong faith if you don't have that faith challenged by truth. What would your response be to people who, and I'm not the only one, what would your response be to people who view Antonioni as pretentious? I really just think that you have to take a deeper look at him because he is coming off of all these conventions. We see so much blandness out there. We see so much one, two, three, ABC, almost television type work out there. He wants to take it to another level visually and thematically. He wants to go deeper within that field of work he's in. So I don't find him pretentious. This is where I think, that for me, I struggled the most with this debate is that I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I feel I will have failed in today's podcast if what people take away is some sense that what I'm saying is that movies and topics and subjects that Antonioni's dealing with shouldn't be dealt with. That's not how I want to be understood. I love all kinds of cinema, and I love bleak cinema. Tarkovsky, I love Cronenberg, 
I love Boonwell. You know, these are all, I don't know about Tarkovsky. I actually think Tarkovsky had spiritual faith. But yeah. I think that, uh, you know, Cronenberg and Boonwell are both very on the book atheists. And they're two of my favorite filmmakers. And I don't want to speak for David Fincher, but it's hard for me to think that Fincher has a lot of spiritual faith. I, maybe, maybe not. Woody Allen is also atheist, Woody, I, too. And I'm a big Woody Allen fan of his filmography. We'll have to have that conversation another time. But yeah, Woody Allen is an atheist filmmaker. And Antonioni is one of his favorite filmmakers, and La Ventura is one of his favorite movies. It's going to sound paradoxical, but I my belief is actually that you only get to truth at contradiction. That's where Zen and the Taoism, like I, I've said this all the time. But I'm, I'm very spiritually promiscuous. I take from everything. Oh, uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. One of the things I love about the Tao is the Tao says, Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching, Taoism, is that the more that you have dogma and desire, the less you're able to see the world the way it really is. Because you're trying to see it the way you want it to be. And that, I think, is the biggest problem when you have an ideology, is you've decided this is how I am going to see the world, but that's not really how the world is. You're just imposing. You're an ant, if that, on the planet. And then when you think about the universe, you're not even an ant, which I think Antonio and he gets at. So when you impose your political and religious and national view on the world, all you're doing is not seeing the world the way it is, which is a very messy, brutal, surprising, unexpected even if you have, as you were saying, spiritual faith, you still have to wrestle with why were these children killed? Why did this genocide, why are these genocides still happening? Why are these movements that appear fascist occurring? Why are we destroying the planet? You, you know, why are we moving ourselves to extinction? An asteroid could hit us at any moment, and that would be, you know, uh, Lars von Trier, another now atheist filmmaker, Melancholia, brilliantly challenging. And I love these movies. I love these challenging movies. But why do I love Melancholia, but not La Ventura? I think Melancholia deals with the affluent in large part. And yet I somehow find a way into this story about a woman with depression who is weirdly the most equipped for the end of the world. But La Ventura, I just, when Anna disappears from the movie, once you've seen the movie, I had to groan because I was like, oh man. Now it's an hour and 45 minutes of Vidi and Frazetti bitching about their lives. And I, I just, I was like, okay, oh, go. And I kept looking at my watch. I was like, I just don't want to hear these people complain about their lives. Maybe it's the Irish in me, too. I don't need to hear people bitch about their lives. Get on with it. You're here. You're living. Why am I going to listen to you for an hour and 45 minutes complaining? <laughs> I kind of like Melancholia. I'm not a huge Lars von Trier fan. He is... A lot of people are not. Well, I think some of his movies have interesting ideas, but none of them ever seem fully realized. The only movie I really love of his is Breaking the Waves. That's the movie where everything fully comes together, and we can get into that movie another time. Ironically, a movie about spiritual faith. Yes. When he was a believer. Well, he kind of still is, actually. But oh, has, that, he, has he turned back? Kind of, yeah. He's always on and off. But he, Yeah, see? Oh, are you excited about the kingdom? Uh, I'll have to watch. I don't know. I, oh, I hope yeah. he's turning back. Because breaking the waves, and then I'm going to shut up. Yeah. Th- that's his masterpiece. Yes. So, sorry. I agree with Patrick yeah. wholeheartedly. But I find La Aventura to be a better movie because it fully indulges in its subject matter. It fully explores it. He's not just going out on a whim. He's actually 
following these people from beginning to end. He doesn't want the typical dialogue in movies. He does show them complain, but he frames them within their backgrounds to almost create a painting-like atmosphere for the film. You watch the movie, you don't really remember as much of the dialogue. You remember it by images that you walk (laughs) away with that basically have something to say about the world and about feeling detached in this modern world. So with Melancholia, I feel that's more typical drama, just typical dialogue, typical narrative, where with Antonioni, he creates a new language in the film. And many people say that. I mean, Scorsese says that. You know, you know what you love and you know what's not for you. You know, there are some filmmakers or movies that... You know, even today, I'm sure everyone's going crazy about, I'm getting in line for this movie. And you, I don't mean you, Patrick, but you or me, will go, ah, (laughs) I don't, you know, it's not a movie I'm going to get in line for. It's not that I judge it, but you know what you love and you know what you don't love. And I think for me, I find Antonioni's visual language, maybe because it's reinforcing alienation, it's reinforcing detachment. It's reinforcing meaninglessness. It's reinforcing materialism. It's not language for me. It's not filmic language I enjoy. I get it. I get they're shown against rocks and tall buildings and hallways and beautiful dresses and silences. I get it, the European decadence. And I, but I just, I'm like, ah, okay. And they're also like so depressed. I like a little joy in my movies. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I just, at a certain point, I'm like, oh, you people. You know, that's the thing with all those movies. The first movie where someone seems, like, joyful to me is Blow Up. David Hemmings and the girls, even though, you know, they're still kind of flailing around, at least they're having fun in Swing in England. Like, it seems like they're having sex and drinking and listening to rock music. And I'm like, ah, they're enjoying life a little bit. But, I mean... Does anyone enjoy life in La Ventura, La Notte, La Eclise, or Red Desert? Is there one moment where anyone enjoys anything? <laughs> well, it kind of goes back to that Peggy Lee song. Is but that I don't believe that. Is. I just don't have that worldview. <laughs> well, at times I've had that in my life. I had it as a teenager when I first saw the movie. So I think that maybe I identified with that some. And just at certain points in your life, you have that point of view. Maybe at certain moments, certain hours of the day, you feel that way. So that movie is kind of a reflection on it. You know, I need to give that up. I'm now embarrassed because many people, despair and depression and existential crisis are very real and they affect almost everybody. And I'm now embarrassed because I understand your point that a movie like Antonioni's, maybe people would relate to the characters in there. And maybe there's even some comfort in saying, oh, this is what I'm going through. Other people are going through it. And if they're going through it, maybe I can get through it because we're all going through it. So I I get glib. I get cocky. I've talked about this before. And then I, I, being a Catholic, then I get very ashamed nice epiphany (laughs) so i'm sorry that i ran off at the mouth because despair and depression and existential crisis are going to hit us all yeah that's a very it's a very good point and that seems to be what he traffics in yeah and all those movies there yeah something that i've always been ashamed about 
when I don't understand someone else's experience, I sometimes can be dismissive of it. So if I don't share a viewpoint, I'll say, oh, that, I just don't, you know, I don't get it. Like I just did with Antonioni. But that doesn't mean that that viewpoint isn't valid. And that doesn't mean that that viewpoint isn't true. Or that that way, it's, you know, and I think the way that God will <laughs> sort of punish me will be, I will experience it. And I'll go, oh, oh, okay. And he, I should have just shut up and not said anything because I just hadn't had that moment. And I think that cinema and therapy and talking with other people is seeing your experience, even the worst of your experience, is so important because you can say, I'm not the only one. So I want to acknowledge that these Antonioni movies, I can understand their meaning and import for those things. I do want to say, and this will be the end of my closing statement, I still think they're pretentious. Even having acknowledged that, I think that I can watch Wild Strawberries, Bergman's Wild oh, Strawberries. Yeah, one of my favorites. One of my, yeah, one of my favorites. Or Akuru, Kurosawa's Akuru. And I think I see a filmmaker dealing with the same issues of trying to find meaning, or even Ozu's Tokyo Story where the famous line, life's kind of disappointing, isn't it? Now, I don't feel that, you know, knock wood. I don't feel that. I really love living. Um, I'm going to be really bummed when I die. <laughs> and I believe in another world. I believe in an existence beyond this. It's not that I'm afraid that it ends, but I, I enjoy talking to you. You know, I, I enjoy being with my family and my friends. And so I don't share that view. Every day is kind of a, a blast for me. Uh, and I have to be honest about that. I, I, I enjoy living. But I think that my argument would be I've seen better filmmakers do it better. I would take Akuru. Now, interestingly, Akuru ends on an optimistic note. In a way, Wild Strawberries ends on an optimistic note. So I think you also have to take with a grain of salt that clearly my worldview or rules of the game, weirdly, it's not optimistic. It's tragic. It's tragic. It's not the same as bleak. It's, it's maybe even bleak, but it's... The tragedy is sort of trying to get you to have an experience or catharsis. So I prefer that film language and those filmmakers. Or I'll even go further. Like, um, I love Tarkovsky. I love Mirror and Stalker and Solaris. I love Bresson. Well, I find him very optimistic. Yeah, I do too, which I'm just trying to think. Like, neorealism. I'll take De Sica or Vesica or Rossellini or even Fellini. Although Fellini is also an optimist, ultimately. But, oh, yeah. But a movie like La Dolce Vita, which came out and, and Scorsese. The same year. The same year. And Scorsese talked about this. He said people were either Team La Ventura or Team La Dolce Vita, and he was Team La Ventura. And you, don't have, you can be both. You yeah. can absolutely be both. He is also. Yeah. But I would say that La Dolce Vita traffics in the same things, and yet I vastly prefer it to La Ventura. And so I do have to say that I, I do ultimately think that Antonioni was also in his movies, like watching La Ventura again, they keep like name dropping authors and painters and philosophers. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you're smart. I get it. You're well read. I get it. I just think that that kind of stuff can, for people who aren't from that world, I think it's a hard sell to get a lot of people to sit down and sit through La Ventura. I still feel that. When we showed La Dolce Vita at the Million Dollar Theater, we did 400 people. Four, and that's huge. Bigger than the Vista. It was huge. If I were to show La Ventura at the Million Dollar, I'm not sure we would get the same numbers. And again, 
Great cinema is not equated by numbers. But my point is that I just think that a lot of people would find him depressing and pretentious, and they'd find the movies aimless. And I do think that there are elements of that in his cinema that go against him. It reminds me of what Richard Linklater said back in uh, 2015. Uh, Him and his daughter had a philosophy that things everybody likes are lame often. John Grisham novels... Green Day or McDonald's hamburgers because they're kind of manufactured in a way for everyone to like them. So there's nothing special in them. Where here in these movies, there is something special that speaks to a certain few people. So that is part of what makes them masterpieces, that they are going to divide some people. Kind of goes back to Jesus saying, I haven't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Yeah, division is going to be a part of something that is great. That's such a crazy... Yeah, sorry, that's such a crazy... Because he does say that. That's such a crazy passage in the Gospels. Because doesn't he say, I'm going to tear, like, daughter from mother and son from father. I'm going to uproot the tree. People like... Martin Luther King divided people in his time because for justice and peace and love. But that's another conversation. Roger Ebert, um, when he first saw this movie, he was 18 years old, and he didn't like it. He just thought, well, what are they complaining about? He didn't understand it. Then when he saw it again, he was 34 years old and 76. He was teaching a film class, and he thought it was more just an idea of some sort, but not fully realized. Then he saw it again when he was 54 in 1996, and he then accepted it as a masterpiece. So who knows, maybe in 10 years from now, we'll join together and we'll talk about this movie again, and maybe you'll finally find it to be a masterpiece. Life changes people. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That's, I'm scared now. <laughs> you know, you're absolutely right. And I have experienced movies that I didn't get when I was younger, And then I was like, oh, oh, this is what it's about. I've now experienced it. So I think you're right. For whatever it's worth, I just want to say, I acknowledge La Ventura as a masterpiece. It's not that I'm trying to argue that I think the emperor has no clothes. I'm just saying personally for me, at least so far, I find it to have a lot of pretension. But anyway, I've already said that. Patrick, you you debated valiantly and strongly and made me see many things. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And stay tuned. Future Connor. What's our next podcast? Well, past Craig, next week for Secret Movie Club Podcast 117, we're talking about unrealized projects like Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon movie he wanted to make or Guillermo del Toro's Hobbit movies that didn't get made or like 800 different movies Tarantino never make. So check that out. So check that out. All right, guys. Uh, you can find out about what we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at Eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com. You can always write us, community at secretmovieclub.com. You, you know, we would love if you like, follow us, tell your friends about us. But also, too, if you're like, um, hey, you guys, <laughs> well, I don't like what you're doing. This should be different. I have ideas. We want to hear those, too. We're a community of movie makers and movie lovers, and we want to make it the best it can be. And having people like you, Patrick, who come in and are passionate about cinema and knowledgeable and are going to tell people why they need to go see a movie like La Ventura, that's what we're about. And I guess I would end on, whether you fall on Patrick's side of it or my side of it, see the movie. Go see La Ventura. It is one, it's one of the most talked about movies in all of cinema. So you should absolutely see it and make up your mind for yourself. 
Have a great week. Love you, family.